Hi, and welcome to a podcast from Hope Springs Church Coventry. For more, please find us on Facebook at Hope Springs Church or on Twitter, we're at Hope Springs Cobb. Thank you and enjoy. Um, I'm going to be talking a bit about Lent, but there's a kind of an introduction that's slightly different. Um, I don't know how long this is. I did a little test of what I'd written, and it said online that it would take 20 minutes. So you could be in for a short ride, which is a bonus. But we'll see. It depends how slowly I talk. Um, I'm going to start just talking a little bit about some of what we've already been talking about, um, which does feed into Lent. We'll get there in the end. Um, but I just thought it would be appropriate for us to not ignore you know, what we've all felt this week probably Um, so yeah life is fragile Um, Psalm 103 which we all probably know fairly well uh, 14 says for he knows how we are formed he remembers that we are dust the life of mortals is like grass they flourish like a flower of the field the wind blows over it and it is gone and its place remembers it no more which is quite a solemn thing to start on Um, So the beginnings of this year um, reminded me, and probably a lot of us in many ways, that life is fragile. Uh, For us personally, we've had a cousin diagnosed with lymphoma, um, quite aggressive. She's only in her 20s. Um, We've had the sister of a close friend diagnosed with cancer uh, of the hard palate in the mouth. Um, Again, she's quite young. Um, They tried to get her in for... Uh, first for a surgery and then found that they couldn't do it the way they wanted to do it so she's back on another waiting list now Um, both of our fathers Lizzie and I have had um, health scares that aren't like you know imminently fatal but they're still reminders that they're not going to be with us forever Um, got another friend who's had a second miscarriage um, just recently and the list goes on and it probably does for everyone in this room as well Um, we all face these moments as Adam was talking about of of like grief and sorrow and uh, it's important that we reflect on how we deal with those things Um, just two weeks ago on Ash Wednesday Valentine's Day we had a shooting in Florida 17 people killed young people all that potential lost and as we talked about today uh, just this week a two-year-old and a six-year-old whose lives were taken by a car Uh, driven by a drunk driver for some of us that happened literally just around the corner roads that we walk every day um, and it's really hard not to project and imagine it being yourself the loss and the pointlessness you know we've got two boys that are really similar ages and just feeling that heartache and then the potential that you see in children as a parent um and the loss of all of that, and it's just, it's never coming back. It's really difficult. Um, and so all these questions come to our mind. Why did this happen? Where is God in this? This God that we call a loving father, a protector, a saviour. You know, was he there? Did he, did, he, did he choose to do nothing? Or was, was he doing something that didn't work? What, what went on? And there are no easy answers. And I don't have answers to that. Um, we think of the mother, um, her two other children that she's got to care for. She's got this terrible conflict of gratitude for those remaining two children. All of the children that she would have been grateful for, I'm sure, her whole life. 
and wanted to still be present for them and help them through their pain um, to love them and give to them but at the same time she's got this tension of being pulled down by this weight of grief feeling so empty feeling angry feeling tempted to hatred to violence as I talked about you know the, the daughter of the woman that was in the car already receiving death threats and so much of the stuff you see on social media is just about how how quickly can we get these people into prison or let's bring back the death penalty you know that's the way we deal with sorrow and grief that's the way we are kind of trained to respond to these things because we don't really have proper mechanisms for it um, these are things that we've as humans we're proven to be completely incapable of solving we cannot fix grief and sorrow we cannot solve it and yet all of us have to face them at some time i think that one of the things that worsens it in our western culture is um the supreme kind of individualism of it so um we are lots of people but we are all one person within this mass we don't see ourselves as uh, uh, as communities as groups of people as nations sometimes we might see ourselves as families but even within that we're encouraged to you know fly the nest as early as possible and make your way in the world and make your career and it's all about you and your you being a kind of hero and overcoming life um, and i think that's really unhealthy in a lot of ways uh, culture doesn't deal with loss it deals with gaining with consumption with accumulation that's what we're encouraged to do we're not encouraged to lose things or deal with that and if we do lose things we're encouraged to consume more to deal with that loss and so as adam kind of said earlier and stole part of my message today which is great it's good because we're sort of saying the same thing um because we're not equipped for grief it can very easily become our undoing or it can be our making depending on how we respond to it i think it's our undoing if we fail to look beyond what's right in front of us we feel uh, the void the pain and we fill that with whatever the world or whatever life pushes to us so more possessions or more wealth or more work filling the time escaping from it or alcohol drugs some other form of escape mechanism whatever provides us with an escape and i an individual make a decision consciously or not to do something that takes me away from the darkness that i'm facing and we tell ourselves we've fought and we've overcome or we drown ourselves completely and we develop a thicker skin and in both cases we're inventing a world where that darkness that death just doesn't exist we're not actually facing it we're just running away but it does exist and it can be our making if we i think humbly accept our inability to actually do anything about it um there's a you, you will have all heard of alcoholics anonymous um I'd, i won't go into how i'm aware <laughs> of them or familiar with them but they've got the uh, within alcoholics anonymous they have what's called a 12 step program which you might have heard of and the first two steps which in in a paraphrase without putting the alcoholism into it say this one we admit that we are powerless we cannot manage our lives alone two we accept that only a power greater than ourselves can restore us and i think when we face death and grief in this way in a sense we kind of 
we welcome the darkness, we admit that we are incapable. Um, it's a bit like Psalm 23, I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. I don't run away from it or avoid it or take a, a detour. Um, and that's not to say that we surrender to depression or give ourselves over to hopelessness. There's a difference, I think it's, but it's about embracing the pain without also letting go of hope. And we find that process really difficult to picture and describe. Again, I think, because we picture it in individual terms. We picture I lost in grief, but still strong enough to hold on to hope. And it, it seems to contradict itself. I overcome, I have the strength. But then I miss the point, because I don't have the strength. And it's this admission that allows God the space to be present. And then we have this weird picture of God as this distant deity, this large separate being, um, with whom, if we're honest, if we picture him that way, we struggle to communicate in a really tangible way. And in this, we also continue to miss the crucial message. So Jesus says that where two or three are gathered, there he is also. That it's his desire that we would be one. That God, it, it seems, would want to minister to us through human hands. And so, again, exactly as Adam was saying, it's our connectedness. It's that rather than I overcoming, it's that we come together. And as I accept that I'm not capable of doing it alone, I allow my brothers and sisters to bear with me and to fill in my gaps. We do not become whole alone. We become a whole together. So as we face grief, grief and we face loss, my prayer that we would be drawn closer together. Um, so togetherness and community are real kind of buzzwords in a lot of modern church movements and they're becoming more and more common with the danger of becoming cliche that we say it so much and that we don't actually necessarily do anything. Uh, we just talk about it a lot and we say, yeah, we're together, we're a community. Unless we take time to really reflect and understand what they actually mean and then to apply them concretely in our lives. So I'd like to offer a bit of a view on what togetherness should and shouldn't look like. So togetherness is not tribalism, although it has often been confused with this, particularly in the church. I know in my past I saw Christianity as an us versus them type of faith. We are in, they're out, we're good, they're bad, we're right, they're wrong, even with other denominations of Christianity, not even with Christians and non-Christians. So we focus on what separates us rather than what brings us together. And it's really easy to justify, even, when, even in the Bible. We define holiness as being set apart. You know, that's what the word means. And surely that's telling us to see ourselves as different, as superior, as better in some way. And in a sense, there is something correct about that. But I think the detail matters enormously. Um, if we believe that our difference and our holiness is grounded in our lack of sin... For example, uh, we're different because we don't sleep around or we drink less alcohol or we don't steal or we don't drive too fast, then I think we've got it all wrong. Because, first of all, most Christians still do all of those things. Um, and as much as we may not feel at liberty to admit it. But second and more importantly, because it's not the holiness that I think Jesus calls us to, I think it's the inverse of that. I think our holiness is grounded in the fact that we do not judge others for doing those things or ourselves that we accept the other and that we're exemplary in our openness in our welcoming 
we choose to look past the sin and wrongs of others and of ourselves and we refuse to allow those offences to separate us. So it's kind of a strange paradox but we are set apart precisely because we're devoted to being not set apart. And this grace, this attitude of love um, where we are consciously looking for the gold and the good in every person not just other Christians, not just other non-Christians everyone we see Jesus in everyone we meet that is what should make us stand out and we might well be hated for it for doing that people won't accept grace being extended to certain people to murderers, to terrorists to paedophiles, it's not okay to accept them they'd be offended by the idea that they, we, us, that we're all actually in the same boat, that every single one of us is only ever a few bad decisions away from the very same failures. This is a hard one to consider, but many of us wouldn't accept grace being extended to the driver of that car. And I ask us if we could be a community where mothers sit next to drunk drivers where the offender and the offended can be reconciled and the lion doesn't devour the lamb my prayer is that we must and I hope that we can so um, what does any of that have to do with Lent Um, we'll get there so uh, we'll take a detour now just to some practical stuff church history on Lent and everyone knows we've heard of Lent probably um, but it's quite muddy regarding the origins of Lent um, I would have thought that it would be like an easy place you know they decided that Lent would happen at this particular year but it really doesn't appear to be like that um, the, the, the closest thing you get is the Council of Nicaea which you may have heard of which is in 325 AD um, and after that it appears to be kind of a formal calendar event relatively set in motion at the same time of year every year uh, but it, before that it's kind of all over the place so uh, it can be seen that a lot of early Christians celebrated Easter which makes sense because that's when Jesus died and rose again and it also correlates with Jewish Passover so they already had that kind of rhythm in their, in their annual calendar um, and Passover is um, moves around in our calendar because it goes in accordance with the Hebrew calendar which is a lunar calendar and ours is a solar calendar um, so then uh, yeah, Easter moves as a result of that and separate to that so separate to the celebration of Easter in church history um, there's quite a common thing of the early church having 40 day fasts so the number 40 we know has quite a significance in the Bible. It's got Israel 40 days in the desert, year, not days, years. Um, Jesus spent 40 days in the desert having a fast uh, prior to starting his ministry. So the early church seemed to adopt that quite often, um, either in the run-up to or after festivals, um, and or quite often just at random times of year leading up to baptism days. So they'd have a set day where they'd baptise a load of new initiates into the church and they fast for 40 days leading up to it uh, as a way of kind of centering themselves um, and so those two things then seem to have kind of come together at some time 
they had a 40-day fast around the new year um, after Epiphany, which I think most of us don't have much of a understanding of when or what Epiphany is. I know I don't, but it's in it's around the new year. Um, so they used to have a 40-day fast after that. There was a bit of a tradition of that, and then it got shifted so that it led up to Easter rather than being after. I don't really know why they did that. Um, I just know that it happened. <laughs> um, so just to give you a bit of history. So a lot of us, if we've got an evangelical or charismatic background, probably have never seen Lent as a particularly necessary tradition. Probably never been that connected with it. Might know that it's sort of happening. We get, get involved with Pancake Day, because that's pretty cool. Don't really know what Ash Wednesday means. Um, and then we get involved with Easter, and maybe Palm Sunday features somewhere in the middle there. Um, I was never really taught it as a thing to do. If you come from a more traditional background, Anglican, Catholic, Orthodox, it's probably the opposite, that you had a very strong sense of what Lent was, but then maybe you decided to throw it away. You come out of that and you want to get rid of all that tradition because it's dead religion or whatever you, whatever, whatever you want to call it. Um, I don't think there's any evidence from what I can see that the practice of a Lenten fast ought to be a requirement in any Christian tradition. It's just something that they thought was a good idea. It wasn't initiated by Jesus or the apostles. Um, although, as I said, a lot of the early church did like 40-day fasts in general. Um, as an aside, outside of faith, 40 days psychologically is said to be an optimum length of time to establish or break a habit. So it kind of makes sense. Um, but I think we can be guilty of throwing the baby out with the bathwater if we just want to get rid of all traditions. Uh, I don't want dead traditions, and going through the motions is pointless. Um, but uh, we, we can't become immune to going through the motions just by getting rid of all tradition. You can still go through the motions, even coming to a completely non-traditional church setting like this, where we perhaps don't have any regularity of the things we do. But we always have some regularity, but... You could go along to Hillsong London every week um, and it, it would be just as empty an experience, perhaps, as going to an Anglican parish church if you yourself didn't go with the right attitude. You know, tradition can have life in it. It's down to us. Um, so the early church was a very widely dispersed for quite a lot of its early history collective of predominantly small congregations there's a lot of kind of said that they went met house to house a lot of the time um, that was kind of necessary particularly when they were undergoing persecution you couldn't meet in a big hall because you'd all get rounded up and taken off to the Colosseum, slaughtered um, so it was often geographically and socially quite divided and disparate and in that context it's not hard to see how shared tradition actually helped to provide a sense of togetherness yeah. so if, if we know we're all doing the same thing at a certain time then it helps you to feel like you're part of something bigger um, so we're familiar with some of the traditions that we don't have a problem with like breaking bread, drinking wine that was one that Jesus himself said you should do um, although arguably we turn that into more of a tradition than a thing that he originally intended it to be maybe it was supposed to be less formal uh, we're familiar with the Lord's Prayer you know, whenever you pray, to pray in a certain way um, I think we're less familiar with the potential communal power of doing those things um, and we're 
as a charismatic church, if that's what we consider ourselves to be part of, we can kind of be actually openly wary of doing things too traditional. We don't want to do communion every week because that's too traditional. We don't want to say the Lord's Prayer more than twice a year because that's like that's just far too much, isn't it? Yeah, we want to pray just from our heart every time and you can't possibly pray from your heart if you're repeating words that someone else has given you even if they were given to you by Jesus himself. Um, you can kind of hear the sarcasm in what I'm saying, <laughs> probably. Um, but I think that's a real shame, you know, because some of those traditions, we know that the more traditional churches do do them regularly. And again, it's this thing of we're separating ourselves rather than focusing on the things that actually keep us together. There's a lot that we share with our other denominational brothers and sisters, and I think it'd be good to celebrate that. Uh, another key tradition that held the early church together was creeds, which I had absolutely no concept of uh, until like last year. Um, but for the first 500 years of the early church, they were central to the theology of the church creeds, not the Bible, because the Bible didn't actually exist as a, as a canon, as a, as a whole book all brought together. They had bits of it. They had the Torah, they had the Gospels, they had some of the letters of Paul, but it would probably be quite unlikely that one, any one congregation would have all of those things, and it, would be, it wouldn't be the case that, any, that lots of individuals would have all of those things each. Um, so creeds were used uh, extensively. They are very short statements of faith that basically outlined what is Christianity in a kind of 30-second elevator pitch, so, uh, so, so to speak. Um, so the Nicene Creed is quite a commonly accepted one, which again uh, was adopted at the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD. I'm just going to read that out to you, because it's interesting. So it says, I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible. For God. I believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the only begotten, begotten of the Father before all ages, light of light, true God of true God, begotten, not made, of one essence with the Father, by whom all things were made, for us men and for our salvation, came down from the heavens and was incarnate of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and became man, and was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate and suffered and was buried and rose again on the third day according to the scriptures and ascended into the heavens and sitteth at the right hand of the Father and shall come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead whose kingdom shall have no end. Jesus. And in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceedeth forth from the Father, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spake by the prophets in one holy, catholic and apostolic church, I confess one baptism for the remission of sins. I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the age to come. Amen. So, for about 500 years, well, uh, they're probably not until Nicaea did they actually have that as an adopted stage, but that kind of statement would have been what most nominal Christians had as their foundation of their faith, rather than a thousand-page book that they could leaf through. So any time there was potential heresy or new teaching, that's what they tested it against. Does it fit with this creed that we've agreed we all believe? Um, they were 
fundamental to the development of the early church because of that um, and they don't really have any place in modern church life particularly not in charismatic world um, so the point of this is simply is again to say that I think we do ourselves a disservice if we choose to throw away all of that tradition I think that it would be it's a real shame that none of us probably are very aware of the Nicene Creed, you know, when it actually plays such an important role in the early church. Um, and a lot of traditions, if not all of them, really have authentic, life-giving beginnings to them. They may have lost those somewhere along the way, but if we can understand the motivations and the reasons for them being there, then we might also find life in them too. So I'm saying all of that, to justify <laughs> or to lead into why we perhaps might consider doing more with Lent than we might have previously done. Um, at this point, uh, I've got a little quiz um, about dates. So I'm going to read some dates out, and I don't want anyone looking at their phones to tell me what they mean. It's a sigh. Um, if and if you can tell me what that date is in the calendar, the Western calendar, you, these are all dates that we should all recognise more or less. So the 6th of January. Epiphany. Epiphany, well done. I thought you wouldn't get that one. <laughs> 25th of January. If you're Scottish, you might know. Burns Night! Burns Night. There we go. <laughs> Robbie Burns Night. 14th of February. Valentine's Day, or this year? Ash Wednesday. 16th February? Friday. Hmm? Friday. <laughs> it's Friday. <laughs> Chinese New Year. Or it was, was this year. I don't know if that moves around. but uh, 1st of March? St. David's Day. Very good. 11th of March? It's a Sunday. I'll give you a hint. Mother and Sunday. 30th of March. That is Good Friday. Very good, yeah. 1st of April should be easy. Easter Sunday. 5th and 6th of April. Completely non religious. No. It's two dates. Kind of gives you a bit of a clue. It's the beginning and the end of something, or the end and the beginning of something. Tax year. Uh, Monday, the 7th of May. Bank holiday, yeah, it's just a bank holiday. The 10th of May. It's near it, but it's not. It's an... I haven't got that on here, actually. I remember seeing it when I was doing the Ascension Day. I don't even know what that means. But it's part of the Christian calendar. Yeah. Uh, 20th of May. My dad's birthday. It is dad's birthday. Also Pentecost. Uh, 27th of May. Could be. I've had it noted down as Trinity Sunday. Again, don't know what that means. 31st of May, Corpus Christi. 9th of June, the 
Queen's birthday. Seventeenth of June, also Sunday. Father's Day. Fourth of July. Everyone probably knows it. Independence Day, American Independence Day. Twenty-fifth of July. Teachers might know this. At beginning of the summer holiday. Yeah. Eleventh uh, of August. If you're into your kicking balls around. Start of the Premiership. 3rd of September, again, teachers. 4th of October. Just <laughs> your brother's birthday. Feast of St. Francis. Yeah, of the CC, yeah. Uh, 31st of October. Halloween, yeah. The 1st of November and 2nd of November. All Saints and All Souls Day. 5th of November. Bonfire. 22nd of November, if you are American. Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. 23rd of November, regardless of whether you're American. Black Friday, the day after Thanksgiving. <laughs> this year. 11th of November. 11th of the 11th. Remembrance Sunday or Armistice, yeah. 2nd of December. It's the beginning of Advent. Apparently it always begins on a Sunday, which I didn't know. Uh, and 25th of December, I'm sure we'll all get. Anyone? 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 So the point of that, is we're supposed to prove that we probably know more non-Christian holidays than we do Christian holidays a lot of the time, officially. And there's quite a few in there that I've never even heard of before. But they're in our calendar. Um, and our year is defined by the culture we're in. We pay a lot more attention, probably, to when the school year ends than to when Pentecost is. Pentecost is when the Holy Spirit came. <laughs> uh, what do we find more exciting, the Holy Spirit <laughs> or the end of school? I don't know. I suppose it depends if you're a teacher or if you're a parent who isn't a teacher. <laughs> it's a bit different. Um, and so, so a lot of the Christian festivals that we do understand, so Easter and Christmas are probably the most common ones, also very easily get turned into chocolate and consumerism rather than anything really to do with our faith. Um, and whether we like it or not, we're bound to this kind of annual rhythm of seasons and I think by choosing to be aware of the rhythm of the church, we also have the potential to become more intentional, more in control of our time, rather than just being carried along by this kind of secular calendar, the tax year, the school year. And Lent is an example of that forgotten Christian calendar. Um, so Lent is 40 days of fasting, which you probably already know. It's actually 46 days if you use the Western version. You're supposed to not fast every Sunday, so you end up with 40 days of actual fasting. Uh, if you do the Eastern Orthodox version, it's actually 40 days, because it starts a bit later, but then it finishes a bit earlier. It finishes on Palm Sunday rather than Easter, and then you have a week of also fasting, so it kind of becomes <laughs> 47 days, but for some reason they don't count that last week as part of the fast, even though you still fast, so it's a little bit confusing. But, you know, somewhere between 40 and 50 days of giving stuff up um, 
what do we fast? So everyone has different views on it. If you take traditional views, you might go vegetarian or vegan or abstain from alcohol or all of those things. Um, in the modern context, you might give up some time watching TV or screen time, social media, uh, try and spend less. Generally, it's focused on trying to stop consuming something. And I think that's actually really relevant and really powerful in our culture. Jesus said a few things about fasting. Um, so in Mark 9.29, it's the story of the disciples trying to cast a demon out and they can't do it. Um, and Jesus does. And then they ask him afterwards, why couldn't we do it? And he said, this kind can only come out by prayer and fasting. I don't think that means that fasting makes us more powerful, not directly, uh, but I think it can be a way to help us focus and practice. And it strikes me that there's also a subtext to this passage. Um, So if you go a few chapters back in Mark 6, um, Jesus sends out the disciples to drive out demons and heal the sick. Twelve young guys, suddenly imbued with superpowers. Um, And in Mark 7... You've got the same disciples being told off by the Pharisees because they're ignoring the Torah tradition because they're eating with unwashed hands. And Jesus defends them. Um, And in Mark 8, there's a scene where Jesus is talking to his disciples, saying to them, uh, if you want to follow me, you need to take up your cross and follow me. Now, he hasn't been crucified yet, so let's understand how weird that is. Take up up our cross, but it doesn't make any sense. But I think there's, there's a potential subtext here that there's a group of young men that there's a temptation to start seeing themselves as superheroes. Yeah. You know, they're healing people, they're casting out demons, they're casting off tradition, they're doing things that the Pharisees said you shouldn't do, and they're like, yeah, we're cool, sort of thing. And then Jesus is saying, actually, you need to take up your cross and follow me. And I think chapter 9 is, is an echo of that. When he said this kind only comes out by fasting and prayer, I don't think he's saying there's a specific demon you know, in this weird category that you can only get out by fasting and prayer. I think he's saying that this life is not a life of superpowers and glory and glamour. It's a life of taking up your cross. It's a life of fasting and prayer and practice and discipline, which we often don't like to hear in the charismatic world. Um, but I do think that's what he's saying, as much as we might not like it. Um, it's a way of humility rather than a way of glory. Uh, another chapter, Matthew 16, uh, Jesus says about fasting that when you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do. They disfigure their faces to show others they are fasting. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. When you fast, put oil on your head. Uh, so everyone should be putting oil in their head during a Lent. Um, and wash your face so it will be not obvious to others that you are fasting but only to your father so he says in this that the ferret or the hypocrites he calls them um, have already received their reward um, I don't think he's talking about materialistic rewards I think what he's saying is that for them um, they've gone out to try and show off and they have shown off and people have looked at it and maybe they've thought they're great or maybe they've thought those guys are idiots but either way it's done what they intended it to do they've got their reward Um, But that's not the reward we want. That's not the point of it. Um, He also goes on to say that uh, when you do it in secret, your father who sees what's done in secret will reward you. Again, I don't think that's a materialistic reward. I don't think we should be expecting money at the end of Lent to mysteriously appear in our bank accounts. Um, 
Because the very verse after, he goes on to say, do not store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Uh, treasures on earth, sorry. <laughs> do store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Just to make that clear. Um, so his point is that the hypocrites are playing pretend that we should not be doing that. Um, he suggests that, in a way, fasting in secret is kind of an antidote. But again, I don't think he's really saying that when you fast, it always has to be in secret. It's about the heart. It's the point. It's why you're doing it. Um, so I think that fasting isn't about showing off. If you think that you're feeling tempted to show off with how great your fast is, then maybe don't tell people about it. Um, but for most of us, that's probably not going to be the case, I don't think. It's an intentional time of discipline, focus, centering on God. How am I doing for time, by the way? Because I've got no idea how long I've spent. All right. Uh, in some traditions, there's also an encouragement to put more focus into doing charity, good works, a positive fast, which uh, connects with Isaiah 58. So in that it says, is, is not this the kind of fasting I've chosen, to loose the chains of injustice, untie the cords of the yoke, set the oppressed free, break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry, to provide the poor wanderer with shelter, when you see them naked, to clothe them? and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood. So I think that's also that's another example of an antidote to proud fasting. So fasting for show, which is what Jesus has just warned us against, um, is not going to be helpful. Um, fasting by giving things up isn't necessarily the whole thing. Fasting is, is, is it's a whole package. It's giving things up which helps us to centre and discipline, but... It's with, a, it's with an outworking. The outworking, is, the outworking of that fast is that we become more inclined to share our food with the hungry. As we stop ourselves from eating certain things, we become aware of the luxury that we have of whenever we want being able to eat whatever we want. Um, and hopefully we turn that into thinking about who we could feed. Um, Lizzie and I are fasting refined sugar, which is hard work, um, although we get to eat it today. I haven't had a biscuit though, so that's a shame. I haven't made the most of it. Um, and I'm also fasting alcohol, um, which is, yeah, still hard work, less hard work, because I don't drink that much anyway. Um, Zeke, when we asked him what he was going to fast, said he was going to fast throwing glass. So... <laughs> Uh, that's a good thing, I suppose. <laughs> if you're inclined to throw glass around, maybe try fasting that. Um, I don't think it matters a lot what you choose to fast. I do think that you should choose something that presents a bit of a challenge. Um, there's no point giving up something that you don't already have. Um, but on the flip side, I wouldn't suggest that you choose something that's really heavy going because it can then lead you to the very thing that Jesus has just been talking about. You know, If it's so hard on you, you can feel tempted to be proud about it and sort of slip it into every conversation or you know I'm fasting all food or something um, so it's about that balance it's not about showing off it is about a discipline um, but that's fasting and this is Lent and Lent is more than just fasting because it's something that we do uh, in it, as a community it's something that we do together and so there's something more to it than just a fast um, So fasting doesn't separate us uh, from the rest of the world who are 
kind of bound to consumerism in some sort of superior way. Um, but I think it helps us to take a break from that culture, um, which is very consumption-driven, dri consumerism-driven, accumulation-driven, um, and that culture promotes the kind of supremacy of the individual. And when we, when we do that, when we engage in that, which we do naturally all the time, we can't really get away from it in the West, uh, if we allow greed to overtake us, we kind of make ourselves out to be powerful, like we're not subject to the sun and the rain and the seasons and anything that might take stuff away from us. I have what I want when I want, just because I want it. And fasting says kind of no to that attitude gently and plants the seed of revolution, I think. Um, and when we do it together, we add, we add more to that coming away from that individualism because we're not just doing it by ourselves. We're doing it as a group. Um, we're expressing it in different ways, but we're doing it as a group within the church. We're doing it as a group within the church, if everyone is doing it. And I think there's something powerful about that in sharing that practice in the togetherness of it. It helps us to focus on what we do share rather than what we do differently. Um, so hopefully there's a bit of a connection now between what we were talking about at the start in terms of grief and sorrow and togetherness and Lent and togetherness. Um, but just in case it's not quite there, I'll try and summarise. So the beginning, life is fragile. It can be very, very hard. Our Western culture doesn't really train us to deal with hardness. Um, it trains us to be supreme individuals who can and will overcome all adversity. We're, we're either heroes already or we're on the way and we're going to be heroes at some point. Um, but most of the time that heroism is false. Uh, consumption, materialism, wealth, privilege, they give us that strength of that sense of strength, power, mastery over our environment. But then when crisis occurs and we realise we're not masters over our environment, um, we're totally not equipped to deal with it. So we escape, we distract ourselves, we grow thicker skins, whatever it is, we do something to turn away from that darkness that's suddenly taking the rug out from underneath our safe environment. Um, and I think fasting challenges that default culture in a direct way um, because it's saying, although you can have all those things, all of those comfort nets, choose not to have them for a bit. Choose not to have some of them. Um, it's illogical to, in a normal sense, why not have something when you can have it? It doesn't actually make sense, but that is the point. It subverts our kind of passive absorption of the world around us. Forces, in, forces us to be more acutely aware of what we are and aren't consuming and makes us more conscious and intentional. It subverts our individuality, our narcissistic tendencies. At the same time, as we do it communally, we remind ourselves that we're not alone in this, which is both encouraging and humbling. It's encouraging because we've got a body around us. It's humbling because I'm not the only person. So I don't know how many of you have chosen to take a fast. Um, I won't put anyone on the spot. Um, but if you haven't already, then I would encourage you to. Um, I don't think it matters if you start late or finish early. I don't think it really matters if you fail six days out of seven every week. If you fail seven days out of seven, then you aren't fasting. So just don't bother. Um, 
But my hope is that the least that we become more conscious and aware of what we consume and what we don't, and that we're not alone in doing it. That's it.